This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Hello, everyone. I'd like to explain a little bit more in a moment about why, why this topic and why this has been a passion for me and remains a passion. I tried to identify a sort of a centralizing question or thought, a centralizing big idea for these myriad thoughts I've had about education. I have been uh, involved in Waldorf education for well over 30 years now, and I've had a lot of different roles during that time. Um, and I guess I went into it out of certain convictions originally. Um, but a real conviction that we need to radically shift our norms around how we dialogue about and define education, um, if for no other reason than because we are dealing with such a rapid rate of change that a lot of our old systems are simply not holding up under the stress. And of course, what we often do under stress is to hold more tightly to what we know. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that tension. Uh, at the higher education level, I think we can see that this requirement, this mandate for change, is happening a little bit organically. We've seen MOOCs, you know, massive online uh, open access learning. Um, we've seen uh, rapid shifts uh, with technology getting interested in education. So things are moving, and again, I will come back to that in a moment. But it's much, much more difficult to imagine change when we're talking about children. And there are some reasons for that. I, um, but I, if I can define my overarching question, it's really how do we educate for the future when we have a really dim idea, just a glimmering and a lot of guesses about what it will look like and what will be needed. Um, and my argument really is that a lot of the way we're thinking is both upside down and inside out. It's a little bit like a sweater or something that got turned upside down um, and that we need to be really dramatically re-envisioning this process of uh, called education. We know why we do it. We've, we've educated our young and been, been engaged in education probably throughout human history. Uh, we want to prepare our young people for the future when it really comes down to it. Um, we want to produce workers. That is certainly an identified goal of, of, of almost any form of education. And more recently, we have this goal in this country of literally, I'm quoting, preparing our young people at high school graduation to compete, to, more, uh, to be better prepared to compete in a global economy. Um, so there's this, this, these are these material needs around education that have helped form us. But what do we do when we don't know what we're preparing for? And what are the signs and symptoms that change is needed? Um, and where can we find a map to guide our exploration, a map that we can, can really trust? And really, really fundamentally, what will it take to create some change here? Um, because logic doesn't seem to be working. So I'd like to speak a little bit personally about why this matters to me. Um, for me, this has been a journey of several decades. Um, and certainly it's been a process of stumbling through my own personal blind and blank spots, the things I don't know, the things I don't see. Uh, and this is a little bit like preparing for the future. How We can't know what we don't know. We can guess. Um, and, and I, in that, discovered this thing called positionality uh, as a graduate student. And I'm embarrassed to admit that when this was first introduced to me, that if I was going to do any kind of study on education, I needed to explore my positionality. I thought they'd made the word up. Um, so I had to go and look it up and discovered, yes, it was a real thing. Um, and for me, it was also a little bit like, I you know, clearly have an accent. Um, I grew up in New Zealand. Um, I didn't know I had an accent. 
because accents were things that people who came to New Zealand on vacation had or immigrated. And it wasn't until I stepped out of that familiar framework that people told me I had an accent. Um, and I think this is a little bit our challenge with education. We're all so embedded in it that it's very hard to see. The late Elliot Eisner of Stanford University called it the yellow school bus syndrome. We are almost all first-hand experts through our experience in, in schools, in some form or other. And we carry a definition and a framework that interestingly is from the viewpoint of a child, our child. And we carry it with us, and this is very interesting when you're working with parents in schools and with teachers because we bring it along in our backpack. Uh, and so school, I think, is actually one of these very challenging areas to critically look at because you have a room full of experts. Now, so for example, if I invited you all right now to take yourselves back to something in first grade, most of you could probably come along with me. And many of us could see the teacher and the classroom and remember activities and remember the feeling relationship of this thing called school, as John Goodman calls it, this place called school. So it's not an entirely objective field. And then we add that if we come back to it, and I'm talking now about um, you know birth through 12th grade, we come back to it with a huge investment, either as a teacher, and this is my field of work, but I'm still bringing my backpack along with me, or as a parent, really concerned, naturally, about my child's journey into the future, or as a taxpayer and a concerned citizen. But unless we can open it up a little bit, we're all approaching it through this subjective lens of our own yellow school bus. So I think this is why it's hard. It's, it's actually a challenging topic to talk about change. Um, as a little background, I told you I grew up in New Zealand. Uh, I had a childhood that I think has influenced my beliefs about what children need, about what education is needed. And if we looked at it, and many of us, whether you grew up in New Zealand or not, uh, over a certain age will relate to this, I was the... Um, lucky recipient of largely benign neglect um, in that the children were the children and the adults were the adults and you did as you were told but you had enormous freedom in some ways um, to explore and to play and to be children. Uh, it wasn't entirely benign because it certainly had its um, inherent sexism and power dynamics and even occasionally violence. It certainly didn't have safety in the way we think of safety for children now, but it had tremendous safety in terms of learning um, to explore, at least physically, your environment and yourself. So we know that this is one area of, of our life as humans that has flipped, um, and that at a period in human history when children are actually safer in this country, statistically, not every child, but on average than they've ever been, we are much, much, much more concerned about their safety. And we are doing everything we can um, as, as well-intentioned adults to protect certain aspects of childhood. So a lot of tensions there. But my school system included some elements that have stayed with me as the natural right of, of a child. We played a lot. We were outside a lot. We did practical crafts because New Zealand was very much still a colonial mentality. It wasn't still in that state, but there was something in the mindset that said if it broke, you didn't know how to fix it because who knows when the next boat will come. Um, the boats came regularly. There were planes. I'm not ancient, ancient, but the, men the mentality was there that you had to be a person with um, resourcefulness and practical capacities. So that was in the school. The girls did cooking and the boys did woodwork, but we won't talk about that. But there were arts, um, there was music, there was outdoor play, there was strict routine. Um, the children were the children and the adults were the adults. Speaking with friends of my generation in California, I think a number of those elements were, were in the school system, generally the public school system as well. Uh, in terms of my attitudes towards education, also I was 
first-generation college in a family that placed very little value on education. It was not seen as the ticket to success. Uh, actually, it was rather seen as the opposite, certainly for girls, um, that why on earth would you waste money in that particular endeavor? Um, and this idea of, of college for all, which of course we have a lot of issues around in this country, but as an ideal, was seen as a strange American thing along with all children needing orthodontia. These were American things on the other side of this big ocean. We, we didn't do such things where I grew up, um, although there were colleges. So off I went to college, um, but I'd say looking back really early on, I had practical experiences that my view of things were gonna be affected by my geography. Um, the fact that I grew up there with a particular culture has deeply imprinted what I think we need to do about education. I was also, by the way, completely clear and determined that I would not be a teacher and that I would not spend my time in schools. Um, really clear at the age of 15. Not happening. Um, I think I, with a, with a short exception when I was younger, when I was a counselor and a social worker, um, <clears throat> I have spent my entire life in schools. So, um, you know, we're really smart at around that age. So, um, I did walk away from education for a while. As I said, I'm really grateful I had this experience in counseling. It has stood me in great stead as an educator. Uh, but I really discovered this thing called Waldorf education as a parent. We moved to New York from England when I had a five-year-old and it was at a time when it didn't seem such a good choice to put a child in the public schools in New York at that time. Um, and so I was frantically looking for a school in September. Yeah, I saw that face. In New York at that time, you pretty much enrolled your child in the right schools before they were born. Um, and I stumbled into this Waldorf school that I'd vaguely heard about and was immediately struck by what I can only call a mood. Um, and as things happen, I no longer believe in coincidences, but I did then. Coincidentally, they had a totally unexpected, irregular one opening in the kindergarten, right as we arrived. And so my five-year-old competed with another five-year-old, and we won. Uh, <laughs> and in he went, and I began this process of observation and trying to figure out what the heck was going on. It was radically different from my picture of school, but I couldn't work out quite why. And so I got very suspicious. My child was blissfully happy. Um, I was brand new trying to figure out how to cross the road in New York City. Um, and I couldn't make sense of what I was experiencing. And so my suspicion turned to wondering why these New Yorkers were so pleasant in this building um, and why they seemed to wear rather strange clothes. And they smiled a lot. And then I had this very happy child. So it began, so I thought, well, I'd better find out. They have my child. I'd better figure out what this is. And it really began what I think has been over 30 years of asking questions. And for me, this has been a very helpful approach because in any system of education, we can easily just buy into the whole. And it's important, I think, that we continue to poke and ask questions. So my intuitive feeling of this is right, this makes sense, was followed very quickly by this is different, this is strange, uh, this is unknown. And what is this thing that I am intuitively feeling as right? There's something there. And through my various roles, I've developed some core beliefs that I'd like to unpack a little bit tonight. One is that, and these are obviously from my childhood, from how I was raised, and then from my experience in Waldorf education. And I'd just like you to kind of follow along with me and see whether we're on the same page or where we disagree. One for me is that we need to protect children. That childhood has a right as a protected place, and we need to give them time that growing humans from tiny beings to adults is not a fast process, and that that slowness needs to be respected and supported and honored. So that's one of my beliefs. 
Two, I've, I came to believe very quickly that we need to build and support connections among children, from children to adults, with children to nature, uh, children to ideas, thinking to doing, doing to feeling, and back again. So we need to support children in being connected. And it's interesting to me as an educator now to watch how tremendously we're struggling with connection and this huge rise in children who are really having difficulty with connection. So it's a modern question for us. Thirdly, I didn't have a word for it initially, but I recognized that we needed to have an integral approach, a connected, threaded approach where things were whole for children because children see things holistically and that that approach had to include the spiritual. And that I didn't find that word much in education outside of Waldorf. But if we were looking at children, we needed to consider the spiritual. Then, really importantly, that we needed to work with and not against the lawful arc of child development. That we have exceptions, but that things happen in a naturally unfolding way as we go from that newborn to that young adult. And that we need to, to understand that, work with it, and not push against it. We needed to connect children with nature. And now, of course, we have a whole body of research around the impact of a disconnect with nature for children. It affects how they can learn and feel and relate. So there's this idea of nature that I saw in Waldorf education. Um, we need to have personal practices as the adults involved with children that allow us to be reflective practitioners, that allow us to be active agents in this dialogue of education. And we need to have a framework for understanding life that gives coherence and purpose. And so for me, that has been the foundational work of Waldorf Education, which is anthroposophy. Um, I'm not sure that the label matters, but that we can contextualize our work and these children or young people in something bigger. So we come to our work with meaning. Um, we need, if we're working with younger children, to accept that although children desperately need adults to be adults, and I think that's a, hard, a harder concept now, but children are looking for adults. The teacher is as much a learner as the student, no matter the age that we're teaching. So we, we need to approach our work with that. And last of all, certainly in the K-12, but I think it's true my, in my experience with adults as well, we need to remember that a day at school without a sense of humor is probably a wasted day. So we need to make sure we pack it and use it. Um, and of course, the wonderful thing is that classrooms are really funny places. A lot of funny stuff happens. Uh, you know, I listen to people who work with the young children, and young children are hilarious <laughs> as they navigate figuring out the world and bring their wisdom to their observations. Hilarious. Um, so here I sat with these, these beliefs, and I have done my best to expand them, build on them, and to enact them and to help others to enact them now for, for a number of years. Um, Waldorf is one of a handful of developmentally based education, uh, educational approaches. It's one that the, uh, David Elkind uh, described as uh, one of the uh, giants in the nursery. These practices that really respect child development and support it. And there's nothing like the privilege of witnessing child development over an eight-year span. I took a class from first through eighth grade, which is one of the things we aim for if conditions are right. And then again now, as a grandparent, to reinforce for me the importance of work walking with the child with their development instead of imposing our idea of what they need on that development. Um, so that has been a core for me. And then I think as both a school and college administrator, I've also watched the adults in the educational arena, the, the teachers and the parents, as they have navigated the incredible pressures 
that we place on our schools, on our universities, the unrealistic expectations, the need to be all things to all people. Um, and so this, this navigating that we are doing in the field of education. And again, coming back, this tremendous challenge that I've witnessed both personally and in my professional practice of really imagining or re-visioning or truly deeply questioning education and schools out of our own experience, as I said, out of our recognition of how important this process of education is, out of our worry that if we dramatically change things, we might not get those outcomes that we need. And so we're a little bit stuck. Um, we have people like Ken Robinson who says, well, you know, let's, let's go down to the basics and ask, do we really need schools in this time? It's a good and important question. Um, but what do we do with our young? What do we do with this question that we know we need to support them? We know we need to prepare them for the future. If anyone knows about the future, they probably are closer to it than we are, just by the laws of development. Um, there's a lot we don't know, but it's rightfully a major issue for society. Um, as practical citizens, we want to see a return on our investment. We, we want to know that we've got a system that's working. We certainly want those children um, taken care of for a good part of the day. Just ask any parent uh, after a week with the children at home. Uh, we want some structure around it. There are skills we want them to learn. Um, there's also a couple of other things going on, though. We are in a very product-oriented phase of our societal development. And so we want to see the return on our investment. And right now, our understanding of that is we'd better assess them frequently. And we'd better make sure that it's working. I liken this a little bit to planting carrots in the garden. And we're so worried that we won't get carrots at the end of it that we pull up those little seedlings at regular points to see if they're growing and shove them back in the earth. And we're not sure why we're not getting healthy carrots at the end of the process. Uh, but talk to any educator in any school right now and they will quickly identify this tremendous pressure about results. That's translated directly to the children. So we've created a lot of tension based on our need for security around outcomes of a certain measurable field. Um, we've also, I would say, got a little bit of a tendency, it's not new, but we, we sort of, if we could, would like to teacher-proof classrooms. Um, if we could just take this unreliable, inexact, variable human element out of it and get a bit more standardization, we might all feel a bit more safe with what's going on. It's been tried before. In the 60s, they thought a television in every classroom would replace the teacher. Didn't do so well. Um, LA Unified invested a lot of money in an iPad for every child, but they didn't sync well with the software. And yet, clearly, we have new capacities that need to come in. But again, one of my core beliefs this, is that education is a fundamentally human activity between human beings. Um, so this desire to, to prevent the vagaries of the human impact is, is a fool's errand. Uh, and yet it's there. It's there in education. Laying out the problems, I will get to the solutions. Um, one of the other things I think we've done is we've turned our view of education upside down, where we say that the older the child or young person, the more important the educator. So if we look at our pay scales, if we look at our qualifications, if we look at uh, respect, now the average college professor might argue that respect is, is an issue there as well. But certainly if you're a professor in our society, you have more prestige than if you're a, a, a daycare worker. Yeah, fair statement. Um, you will earn more. You will have better benefits. You will have uh, fewer work hours. And you will be more respected. This is really weird if we stop for just a moment and analyze it. Um, child's brain, when, when can we have the most impact on a child's brain? Up to the age of three. A child's habit life. Um, a child's capacity to do, 
to be in their, to develop a healthy relationship with their body so they can do higher order thinking. All of these things happen really, really early. So you get something like the economic model that, said, that proves to us the Heckman equation that investment in the first three years, particularly for under, underserved children, disadvantaged children, has enormous economic payoff throughout life. Health system, prison system, you know, this terrible picture of the school to prison pipeline um, for certain of our young people. Um, the, 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 the strain on our schools themselves. He lays it all out in data in economic data analysis, uh, but it doesn't seem to make an impact, not in any really meaningful way. And actually, rather than the greatest prestige going to the, the, as we go up the ladder, the reality is it's a flip, and the greatest impact is as we go down the ladder. And, and, and so these people who are working with our youngest children are actually the greatest influences in the field of education. And imagine if we started exploring that, really exploring that in a big way. Um, what might happen and what results we would see over a period of time. So that's, that's one of our interesting things. Um, we're dealing with this incredible instability right now for children and for ourselves. I don't know about you, but I can't keep up anymore. I've sort of given up. Um, I am drowning in a sea of emails um, without any great hope of redemption. Um, and I'm not alone. Uh, so our children are being impacted by this. And again, we come back to the question of, you know, a key task of education is to prepare children for the future. And we don't know what it's going to look like. So again, I want you just to imagine back for a moment. Uh, I did grow up on the end of the earth. Um, but I can remember a home with no telephone. And then we had this big black clunky thing that was tied to the wall, right? And it had four digits for the number, 6363. Um, I, I raised my children. Uh, we got a PC in the house right as my older son was leaving for college. I avoided that whole, well, we got this, it wasn't a PC, it was this great big thing. But I avoided that whole struggle parents have now. Um, the iPhone has only been around for 10 years. And our lives were changing rapidly before that. We are dealing with this incredible acceleration of change. There's a piece of research that says that children entering first grade this last fall, over two thirds of them will do a, do a job that hasn't been invented yet. If you are in the tech field now, you will probably change careers a number of times and you will change to a company that doesn't exist yet, in all likelihood at some point. I was down at Silicon Valley a few weeks ago speaking at a school down there, and so out of curiosity, I asked the, the audience of parents, how many of you are doing a job that wasn't invented when you left high school? And most of the hands went up. Um, so we can't prepare our children as workers. It is actually not possible. We no longer need to be the knowledge purveyors. And we have to teach them common pool of knowledge, and we have to teach them basic skills of literacy and numeracy and reasoning and, and all of these other things. But we all carry around a sum of human knowledge in our pockets. Um, we're carrying a vast library at all times beyond anything anyone in the Middle Ages could have envisioned. Um, if you watch a young child, even a very protected child who's not given access to technology, et cetera, et cetera, um, give them an iPhone, or first of all, try and keep the iPhone away from them. Shiny object that does things, give it to me, give it to me now and then watch them. They seem to intuitively, either because they've been watching or there's something else going on, they know how to access the darn thing. Um, you know, if I am foolish enough to relinquish my, to put down my phone, and I've got a, you know, five or something, it's not an eight or a nine, or there's no nine or a ten, or um, it's like, 
I turn around and my phone is doing things that I didn't know were on it. They, they, this is their world and they are uh, they're facile in it. So a lot of our model of education is still that I know and I will teach you this stuff. Um, now we can access what was guarded esoteric knowledge that you only got to after a lot of preparation. So this reduction, a reductionist picture of education that we teach certain things, that we test it frequently, that we're preparing um, for this global economy, uh, we're preparing workers, actually does not hold up under any kind of rational analysis anymore. It, it, it doesn't work. Then, of course, we have our traditional assumptions about education. Um, that it's this equalizer, that it, it, it um, has a social factor, it certainly has a social factor, but we actually know that doesn't work either, and we now find our young people at the college level seriously questioning some of our value assumptions around education. There's a study, um, Jen Forward, an ongoing study out of the University of Chicago, and they're finding that, that the only groups right now that are not seriously questioning the value of the automatically going to college and picking up a degree are um, the Hispanic, Hispanic population and the Asian This is in this country, Asian. Um, the young black population is questioning it for the very good reason that historically it hasn't been such a good payoff. Um, and the um, your, your typical Caucasian college-going um, young generation is saying, well, wait a minute. I'm hearing all of these billionaires standing up and saying I dropped out. Um, I'm seeing the entrepreneur economy. I'm seeing how quickly things are changing. I'm not sure this is for me. So our assumptions are on the move. But again, as I said, it's easier with the older kids. It's easier at college to question it. It's much harder with, with, with children. Uh, but, the, but it's pretty clear that the old model of attending college that most of us had a really good time with, you know, sort of you park and you stay. And when you're done, you drive away. Um, and you have a lot of fun in between and hopefully you learn a few things, not necessarily what's on the curriculum. But um, this is really up for, up for challenge right now in a generation that is menu-driven, able to meet needs on demand, access knowledge and explore alternatives in a way that was undreamt of when, when, certainly when I was young. So here we sit in 2017, 10 years into the iPhone, um, at an age that Thomas Friedman says we have now officially passed, at least temporarily, he's an optimist, we've, we've temporarily passed the human capacity to um, keep up with the rate of new knowledge and the pace of life. So what we're all feeling, he says, is real. Don't know what we do about it, but, um, but here we sit at this balance point asking, is there a different way? Is there a different way of framing this debate, of working with children, and what really does education for the future need? So I'll switch to the more positive now. It's, it's easy to outline the problems. Um, but, you know, the fundamental question, I found this great quote by H.G. Uh, Wells, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And I think we're all feeling that, this looming, we've got to do something different. I'm fascinated by, young, by the really little ones right now because I believe that life is purposeful and I believe we make some choices about where we are in a very big picture way. And they are stepping into this. And I look at my little grandsons and I think, I wonder what you're going to experience, both good and not so good. I wonder what it'll be like. It's accelerated, so it'll be exponentially more different than what I've experienced in my life from going back to the no phone to now. What's it going to be like? And then underneath that, how can we help you? And I think that is my biggest question of how can we help usher the next generation into their future? Um, 
We know that it will include artificial intelligence. We know it will include augmented reality. We know it will include a very strong interface between being human and being technological. Um, so, and we know that it's going to include a lot of questions about what's real and what's not, because it does now. And so, what can we take from this and what can we be advocates for, whether it's with one child in our lives, whether it's through our own studies, or whether it's directly in, in our work? One, I think the challenge more and more is to help people develop the capacity to discern, to trust themselves initially, uh, and then to be able to move out from a core of self so for me, one of our goals when we're, when we're talking about education at any age, because it's, it's true also when you're doing your doctorate, is how can I look at this vast sea of opinions and wisdom and knowledge and experts and trust myself with this is correct, this is right, this is true. So a strong core of self from which I can make a judgment, from which I can form an opinion, and from which I can take action that involves my head, my heart, and my hands thinking, feeling, willing, uh, seems to me to be key. Uh, because we live in ambiguous times, uh, if anyone wants to challenge me on that, we'll take it up later, but I'm going to say it as a statement. It implies the need for moral education, for helping our children develop values, again with this core, this sense of self. We don't like to talk about moral education, especially in public education. We somehow got confused around First Amendment rights as to whether we could really go there. But if we're talking about the future of humanity, we must, in my opinion, go there. And we must talk about helping children develop basic moral principles. And that starts when they're really little, really little. Um, we have to figure out this question for children of the blending of consciousness and technology. And again, I'm mindful of my backdrop here. Um, this is an ancient aspect of being human. It's not new. We've just raised the stakes enormously because we have these fascinating possibilities and huge risks. I think they may have had the same argument around fire. Huge possibilities and enormous risks. So this question around how do we help children develop, and, and, and older, I'm focusing right now on children, develop this dialogue around consciousness and technology so it doesn't eat us up. Um, we live, and they will live, in a climate of disruption and change. I'm an optimistic person, but I'm not seeing this getting easier or better quickly in terms of disruption, change, chaos, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they are going to need resourcefulness, flexibility, grit, perseverance, resilience, and um, the ability to think through. These are not strongly fostered in a, in a current educational model that is doing short-term assessment for immediate results. But boy, are our, our young people going to need these characteristics. You could argue that right now we're all dealing with daily trauma. We know that we have children who are truly traumatized on, on, from a wide range of things. But just getting out of the house and to work right now feels a little traumatic um, in terms of, of number of people, traffic, pace, tasks, um, you know, the technology that has made our lives so much wonderfully more easy. Um, pulling a face for those who are listening on the podcast. Um, so. Trauma-informed education actually is really helpful in telling us what our children, what our young people need, what should be core to education. Um, we know if we look at, for example, IBM did a, a global study of capacities needed for leaders. And the number one was not knowledge of technology or uh, uh, an MBA from a top university or anything else. It was creativity. Number one attribute needed, creativity. Coming out of Silicon Valley, the old humanities graduates are starting to become interesting again. You know, remember the humanities were dead? 
Um, in case you missed that, the humanities were a waste of money. Let's cut back on them. Let's do the things that will drive um, our advancement further. Well, humanities, if they're done well, imply a lot of these qualities that are needed. Hopefully, you, you learn how to communicate, both orally and in writing. We know this is a huge problem for employees right now. Basic capacities in communication, clarity of thought, ability to think outside of the box. These are Silicon Valley request lists, shopping list. Creativity, independent judgment, willingness to play, play. Some of our big tech companies have playrooms. Um, ability to work with others, story, which I find a fascinating addition, the, the capacity to tell a story, and much less emphasis than we might think on technological knowledge or engineering. Uh, they need a core of people with those skills. But they need thinkers and imaginers and collaborators and dreamers. They need people who are willing to take risks, experiment. They need people who can laugh and play. Um, isn't this interesting? And these are, as I said, done well attributes of our study of humanities. They need people exploring the human condition as we look at technological advances. Software knowledge, probably not a lot of use. You know, again, with our we'd better do it early and we'd better do it thoroughly because we're worried about the results. Uh, there's been a big drive to get children um, programming at a very young age. There are Fisher-Price programming kits for children. Um, if they're interested, great. As a requirement for the future workplace, pretty stupid. Because whatever is software right now is probably not going to be software in, in 18 years. Um, probably not. Possibly, but highly doubtful. Otherwise, I'd still be carrying around my old wireless radio. Um, so, so probably not. Um, so, all of this points to what I fell in love with in Waldorf education and what I have questioned and struggled with for, as I said, over three decades, which is, as I sit in the California Institute of Integral Studies, an integral approach to education at every level, no matter what the age is. Um, addressing whole human beings. Now, to be fair, I've not seen too many partial ones, but really taking on all of the aspects of, of being human. And if I do a workshop with a parent, I go out to school somewhat regularly. Um, I often ask them why they chose the school and what they want for their children. And it usually starts off a little bit slowly, but as they get going, we quickly fill either the chalkboard or the flip charts with all of these qualities and wishes they have for their children. And then at a certain point, I can do this pretty reliably. I stop and I say, okay, what's, take a look and tell me what's missing. And so they sit and they look for a moment and they say, there's nothing about SAT. There's nothing about grades. <clears throat> There's nothing about um, getting into a good college. Um, it's not that they don't value those things. It's not where we're living when we think about our children and their future. We live in soft, what's called soft competencies. We live in capacities. We live in humanity. We live in, in our being human. And, you know, if you really get down to it, a parent wants their child to be happy, if possible. Um, I remember holding my first firstborn after a slightly rough passage and thinking, darn, I wanted his life to be perfect and it's already not. You know, we, we want a lot for our children. So the lists are pretty predictable and pretty common. And they are about who they will be as people, uh, kind, happy, um, ethical, good self-esteem, creative, imaginative, willing to explore, loving nature, respectful. Um, all of these qualities, happy, fulfilled, able to follow their passions, knowing what their passions are. Um, 
that has very little to do with teaching to the test um, or worrying about very particular outcomes. I'm not suggesting we throw accountability out of the window at all, but it's, a, it's an interesting point of tension. So academic goals never appear, in my experience, in the first round with parents. I've never seen it yet, and I've done this a good number of times. Um, and they don't even notice it's not there, as I said, until reminded to take a look. They want moral capacities. They want independent judgment. They want emotional competence. They want self-reliance and inner resources that the child can draw on at any point in life. Self-esteem, social capacities, an ability to act and do, independence in thought, ecological awareness, and an honoring of their unique spiritual identity. These are the things that surface. So, I believe for all of its challenges, and it has them, that a Waldorf or similar approach, which actually really is an integral way of thinking about education, meets and builds those capacities. It also, in our contemporary society, has to juggle uh, the anxiety of both teachers and parents and the expectations of society. So it's, it's n no system of education is ever perfectly enacted. And this one definitely has some, some limitations both in itself and because of, of our time. But why can I sit here and say that? Again, for me, it's developmentally appropriate. And this, this is one of the keys that I'm working with a group back on the East Coast that has brought together a group of different uh, educators from developmentally appropriate approaches, all a little bit different, but we're getting together and we're trying to figure out what the core is where we all have the same framework. And it is about respect for the child, respect for childhood, understanding that we need to become keen observers of what's going on with the child and work with them as they unfold, not try to uh, push against or impose. So we've been exploring together what is the core of excellent early childhood, in this case early childhood, remembering the Heckman equation, what is the core of excellent early childhood education that has been tested over time and that is health building and success orienting for young children? What are those core principles? And the first over and over again is development. Um, there's an incredible joy as a teacher. I found it again and again and again where I would bring a subject because it was next on my plan for the year and we delved into subjects very deeply. You would teach the same subject for up to a month every day for a couple of hours um, as their core curriculum. And the children would be anticipating it in some way that I could never fully explain. Right towards the end of one subject, they'd start asking questions about what I was going to bring next. I didn't have it up on the wall. But they, I was catching them where they were, where they were living, where their interest was, where their abilities were. And so that changes your entire dynamic of teaching and learning, working with the child's development. So really, if we are thinking from this point of view, what's our map for education? It's child development. The child actually tells us what they need to learn. I'm not talking about free schooling. I've learned all about that 100 years ago. That's what I was going to do until I was faced with real children. Um, so, uh, but this, this idea of using child development as your curriculum map is a really intriguing one. Each, uh, again, in most developmental approaches, we look at phases of development. In Waldorf education, there are seven-year phases. The interesting thing is they continue through life. So you're not done until you're done. We're all on a path of developing and learning. And every one of these phases has a basic orientation towards the world and a basic modality of learning um, that we can work with. So for example, if we look at the first seven years of life, and this is very much reflected in a Waldorf preschool or kindergarten, they're doing this extraordinary deed of growing 
a physical body. Uh, that the rate of change will never be repeated, otherwise we would be a race of oddly proportioned giants. Um, it's incredible, it takes energy, it takes resources, um, and so we want to support that and work with it. They need to play, that recurs at every phase, including mine, in my own development. There needs to be play. Um, and they learn, they're like little um, experiential sponges. They can't filter anything out, so that's our job. Um, and they learn through imitation an awful lot. So if we know that, we've got some tools and some, some pedagogical approaches. The next seven years, um, this incredible gift, if you know children of this age, of using the imagination, the power of their imagination, story, uh, their feeling life, their rich capacity to think in images. Again, if we can work with that, it gives us an idea of how we can work with them. Then our wonderful 14 to 21-year-olds, where their independent thinking is really taking off, really taking off. And they're looking for experts around them with whom they can have lively debate and whose opinions they can challenge as they form their own independent, we hope, heart-warmed thought. So they're engaged in meaning-making. Um, a couple of other aspects of, of Waldorf education. Um, one is, it's often known as, oh, that's, a school, that's one of those arts schools. Um, and just this absolutely essential role of honoring the arts as a fundamental human activity. Um, and all of the explicit and implicit learning that goes on through the arts. A couple of people who are no longer with us, James Catterall and Elliot Eisner, I mentioned him earlier, absolute champions for the role of the arts in education. Talk about the, them being non-negotiable in education, including higher education, um, as this human way of interpreting knowledge. Again, looking back, it's timeless, it's throughout history. We know that the arts support brain development. Uh, we know that um, the arts are essential to the human story. We know that the arts teach direct skills, making decisions, um, trial and error, practical application, spatial awareness, measurement. Um, there are moral lessons in the arts. There are social lessons, uh, perseverance, courage. There's nothing like sitting facing a blank piece of paper or an unchiseled piece of wood as a deed of courage to begin. So by bringing the arts into education, we're bringing all of these really powerful lessons at any age. Um, a coherent framework somewhere about what it means to be human. And in Waldorf education, there is most definitely an underlying philosophical framework that says life has meaning, that we come from somewhere, we're going somewhere, um, and that we are here for reasons. That is actually tremendously uplifting as a teacher, um, that I'm engaged in, in the purposeful support of this unfolding of a destiny. Um, and I think we only have to be a parent of more than one to recognize that they arrive in different packages apparently with different approaches to life and with different um, goals that they will either plunge head, head first into, sometimes literally, or much more cautiously. So what is our underlying philosophy about childhood, about learning, about education, and about the purpose of life? It's that big. Um, a couple of other things that have been really important to me as I've approached <coughs> education. By the way, I want to be really clear. <coughs> Most of my learning and coming to these conclusions was through um, trial and usually error um, of making mistakes, of learning through doing. And I now, you know, with, with humility, talk to parents and it's always, a, you know, don't do what I did. Um, learning through mistakes. Um, because it's a journey. But I think that really comes to another part that is core to my mind in integral education, in Waldorf education, and that is reflective practices. And this is not something that's generally emphasized in teacher preparation. 
but because of the extraordinary impact we have on young people, if we have the temerity or audacity to say, I am your teacher. And I think this is true also. You know, I had role models in college. I don't think it really matters the age. Um, Parker Palmer, who has thought a lot about what he calls the heart of education, puts it very basically, we teach who we are. We teach who we are. And so there's a hygienic process of understanding continuously to the best of our ability who we are and what it is that we're bringing into that classroom and that our children are absorbing, imitating, learning from. Because certainly for the young ones, they, you know, we start off perfect um, in, in, in much of that relationship. And the power dynamic in teaching at any age means that we need to be attending to our inner selves as teachers. And so if we're talking about preparing teachers, we really need to give them some tools. We really need to be talking about reflective practices, about reviewing the day, about asking questions, about where did I live up to my expectations and where did I really fall flat on my face? Where did I lose it? Uh, which children in the classroom did I really not notice today? Can't for the life of me think what so-and-so did. Um, can't call them to mind. So out of that, you know, meditative practices for the teacher, preparing for the day, threshold experiences, crossing the threshold into the teaching space and leaving it again at the end, uh, not bringing all of my daily stuff in there, making space for this activity of teaching, not perfectly by any means, but at least holding that as a really important part of the dynamic. Um, and my own experience was that, you know, we set up these things where we, I, I usually had large classes. You know, I was alone to kind of do whatever I was gonna do. I closed the classroom door and there were my 30-ish children. Um, as long as I didn't lose control completely, you know, I had a lot of freedom in there. Um, there were moments, trust me. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I wasn't alone because out of my own practices, out of my picture of what human life and education is, I could ask for help. And some of that help came from the children and some of it came from a much bigger picture of support and help. And that, that was part of my classroom work, uh, to have the humility, at least occasionally, to recognize it wasn't all about me and my ego there with these children. It was a collaborative, co-creational process, and that help would come if I remembered to ask. Um, inspiration, a new idea, a new insight into a child. Um, it's there. And so for me, the journey of teaching was always deeply one of self-discovery, of my own learning, not ahead of the children's learning, um, and ultimately of turning beliefs and assumptions upside down. And I think that's the dialogue we need to really engage in around schooling, around education, around this art and craft of teaching, and that we need to equip people who, even with all of the challenges, still have this urge to teach. Bless them. Um, we need to equip them. Less so around making sure their assessment scores are high. They will need that, otherwise they'll be out of business in our current climate but much more so around these intangibles of how, what activities will support these capacities in the children. You need a rich, broad curriculum to do that, that has a range of knowledge and experience and activities. Um, a Waldorf curriculum, one of the things I love about it is it's rich and broad and, and engages a lot of different aspects. But the teacher themselves, uh, personal growth, tools, self-reflection, um, and this exciting possibility that I can continue to learn and grow um, throughout this career. And then the delicate and essential questions around cultural competence, bias, bringing myself into the classroom. I cringe when I look back at some of my assumptions and some of the things I said in the classroom because I didn't know what I didn't know. The other blind and blank spots. We're much better at that now. And this is certainly an institution dedicated to exploring um, 
our cultural backpack, our biases, self-knowledge and awareness, what Zaretta Hammond calls culturally responsive teaching, understanding who's in the room, including myself, and making it an inclusive, welcoming place. Um, so I have not gone into a journey through the, the curriculum, the typical picture of what is it that develops these competencies. But what I believe is woven through is a lot of those qualities I've mentioned earlier, um, brought from meaningful and sustained relationships, integration of head, hand, hearts, uh, non-negotiable inclusion of the arts, constant use of story as a fundamental way of relaying information, recognition of movement, connection to nature, uh, the inner work and development of the teacher, a belief in the child's destiny and the larger forces that are at work in human life, school as a community and the importance of relationships not just for the children but for the adults as well, um, and really rooting what, we, what we've been practicing for almost 100 years of this education in the most modern knowledge we have around the brain and its development and being able to dialogue intelligently around that. So what, how do we educate for the future? I think we educate with tremendous humility, with an absolute recognition that we don't know what it's gonna look like, with optimism and hope because we need to change the narrative around the future and with building these capacities of what we know will be essential, persistence, grit, flexibility, creativity, independence of thought, ability to discern what I believe to be true, and the courage to act. I would like on behalf of Public Programs to thank you all so much for coming. And um, I've learned, I've learned, so thank yes, you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.